welcome, welcome everyone. I'm Ekaterina from Future London Academy and welcome to our leadership series. It's the second episode and our guest today is marvelous, fantastic Fede Garcia, Chief Creative Officer at BCW. It's a great global communication agency that does lots of various campaigns and before that Fede worked in huge organizations like HUGE, as well as Translation in New York and Aguilby, Tokyo. Um, Fede was born in Argentina, but as you can see throughout his 25-year career in creative world, he moved quite a lot from New York to Tokyo to Buenos Aires and work in great organizations with fantastic brands like NFL and others. And obviously he won lots of awards throughout his career, like Cannes Lions and DNADs, Clears and One Shows, you name it, I'm sure you've got one of those. And uh, also has been featured in many publications like Independent, Mirror, Washington Post, USA Today, Business Insider, Hollywood Reporter, great variety of uh, publications that obviously were spreading fantastic news about Fede. Welcome and how are you doing? Thank you very much. I'm calling in from Buenos Aires, I'm in Argentina, where it's sweltingly hot. I'm slightly jealous, it's definitely far from being hot here in London, but uh, <laughs> it's quite a nice day, so it feels Christmassy, I think it feels appropriate for the weather, and I feel like everyone is already in this cheerful mood when kind of halfway, half of their mindset is already in Christmas mode and half trying to wrap up all the work that needs to be done before December. Yeah. I'm very excited to talk to you today for many reasons, but one of them, apart from obviously your incredible career and all the achievements that you've done, because you had such a, you moved from one industry to another, from one country to another, I feel like you have such a global perspective and by global, I mean multicultural, multi-industrial. I feel like you've seen it all and you could share bits of insights that you picked up from every company, every agency, every team that you worked with. Really, really, really excited to, to talk to you about different things from what does it mean to be a chief creative officer and how you progress throughout your career, as well as design leadership and creative leadership in general. What does it mean in the modern world and how can we all be better creative leaders, no matter what position we're in? And where I wanted to start is actually when I was going through your LinkedIn, I obviously you're a fantastic copywriter, you're copywriter by trade. So every post that you have on LinkedIn is, is seriously such a treasure because it has so many witty insights and commentary and just uh, fun perspectives. But one thing really um, surprised me that I saw there and I would love to read it back to you and hear a bit more of a backstory. So you posted an image and that captured me scrolling through LinkedIn post in 2012, creative director in Buenos Aires, everybody doing is better than me. And then me scrolling through LinkedIn post in 2022, global chief creative officer, New York City, everybody doing is better than me. Can you tell a bit more about why you wrote it and what, what's going on here? It, it was kind of funny. I, I... It, it literally happened like that. I use LinkedIn because I have to use it for work purposes, like in all social media. But when it comes to social media, I appreciate what brings to the table. But I'm even if I use them, and I wouldn't consider myself a heavy user, but like a, a user, I don't enjoy what brings to the table because it's this idea that you're comparing yourself to all the world at the same time and it's impossible to win. I remember I grew up without social media 
And when it comes to your career, there's always somebody that you kind of admire, somebody that, that you choose as your rival in a way, even if it's he's not your rival, somebody that you are chasing, or oh, I wish I could do like that guy. There was always that. And, and I had people, I can give names about the people, oh, that guy's doing such an amazing work. I wish I had his career. I wish I could be as good as him. But I was comparing myself to one guy, maybe two. Now when you're on LinkedIn, you're comparing yourself to the entire fucking world and it's impossible to win and the funny thing is that you never compare yourself to the ones who are doing worse than you you compare to the ones that are killing it and the funny thing is that even if you compare to one person that is killing it that person might be killing like once a year but every single day there is someone out there killing it and you compare yourself to all of them it's like you against the rest of the world and you can never ever win. Uh, so I came to that realization that when I look at my career, I feel that I've done pretty well. I certainly achieved way more than, than I ever thought. And yet I go into LinkedIn and like, oh, I suck. My career is a disaster. And it's like, if I feel like that, I can only imagine how everyone else could be feeling. And then I thought it was important to, to share that. I was reading this book called The Infinite Game, which is really, really interesting. And it talks about the difference between a finite game and an infinite game. And the infinite game is your career. An infinite game, you compare to some yourself to somebody else, but you're not necessarily competing to that with that person. It's just all in your head. And I feel that social media, LinkedIn in particular, when it comes to careers, but like Instagram, when it comes to your life, is like this endless competition and you're always looking at the people who are doing better than you. That on any given day, there's always somebody doing better. That doesn't mean they're better than you, but you will always find somebody doing great. It's like you go on Instagram, it's like everybody every day is in a fucking holiday. No. But because you're following a hundred people or a thousand people, there will always be somebody doing a holiday. And then you feel I'm the only one working here. Nobody works. Everybody has an amazing life. And they think it's incredibly unhealthy. I can so relate to that. And actually, a few years ago when I was on, LinkedIn, uh, on Instagram, because on Instagram, you're right, we post about uh, things that look great and also when we have time to post for me the the instagram thing was literally the only time i have to post when i have nothing to do that means i'm not working that means i'm either in the gym or i'm on holiday so i'm posting whatever i see and i realized my instagram feed became this kind of gym holiday kind of wonderful life while yeah. i work sometimes 10 12 hours a day and this is majority of my life is actually work but never a second in during the work day the thought occurs Shall I take a picture of myself working? Because that's what I'm doing right now. And this no, is that's the funny thing. It's a heavily curated version of our lives. People go into my Instagram. So you live the most amazing life. You have no idea what my life looks like. But look at your Instagram. It's 20 pictures a year from 365 days. I don't take a picture of myself on Instagram. It doesn't like look like shit. That's so true. And, and I think LinkedIn, as you said, it is a professional version of that. But um, on the other side, that's what I wanted to kind of ask you, especially as a copywriter and especially working in communications and PR, which whole role is to brag and talk about your achievements and highlight and celebrate the achievements that you're doing as a brand, as a company, as an individual so where is this line, especially at a leadership position, this is expected for you to share the awards that you 
you've 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 got and also to apply to the awards in the first place so where is this line between actually doing work and being good at your work versus sharing on LinkedIn LinkedIn, how good you are at your work? There's two parts to that question, and I'm always conflicted about it, right? I started working in advertising in 94. There was no social media. There was no internet straight away. So if you did great, somebody would read it in a magazine. So a magazine has a finite amount of pages. So there was so many space for so many ideas to be talked about. So only the very, very best uh, rose to the top. Now, think of pages. Advertising magazine in Argentina would publish maybe twice a month, 64 pages. There's a very finite finite number of ideas and people that they can feature. Now, LinkedIn never runs out of ink. Any given day, there are a thousand gazillion pages being written from things that are really worth watching to things that are the worst thing that I've ever seen in my life, and they all have a space on LinkedIn. And I say, this is toxic and this sucks. But at the same time, it's part of the job because if you're not there, nobody sees you. Like they say, nobody will ever make, like we advertise clients. And obviously to do better in the jobs and in our careers, we need to advertise ourselves. So when I started, you couldn't advertise yourself. The best you can do is, or you could do was, make something great and pray that somebody would pick it up. Now we own our own media, which is our fucking LinkedIn page. And then we feel that if we're not promoting ourselves, we're doing a disservice to ourselves. So we get into this, I have to promote myself and I don't have nothing really to say. So I start working for myself and I don't do the work that I should be doing. Then my work is not that good and I don't get picked up on the media. So I need to double down on the self-promotion. So it's a whole toxic circle. On the other side, when you have my job, you at the same time are the creative face of the corporation, of an agency. So your job is to promote everything that the agency does. There are people who are very comfortable with promoting everything and anything. And then I said, this is my job and I have to do it. I am a little bit more, well, not everything should be shared. Not everything should be put out there for everyone. I cannot talk about anything. There are pieces of work that we do that I'm proud of. And there are pieces of work we do that I'm not that proud of. And then the job says you should publish everything and you should be the voice of the agency. And you're the creative lead. And it is part of the job. And I do it. That doesn't mean that I don't struggle with it. And where, where is, I suppose, especially from the personal perspective, have you figured out your personal rule? I don't know, I need to post at least once on LinkedIn to know, to let my network know I'm alive. So I'm more... I, I don't. The funny thing is I've had these conversations with like regional CCOs around the world and global CCOs around the world. And they keep telling me, said, you need to promote yourself more. Everything that the agency do, you need to promote it. Because people need to see all the work that you're doing. It's like, personally, I don't feel like need that. I'm okay where I got with my career. And all I care about is doing great work. But they say it at the same time, you have to do it. Because there's other people who are far inferior that all they do is that. And they will take the job that you might be gunning for. And it's unfair. And it's like, well, yet I, I don't have the energy or the stomach or the ego to do it. But when it comes to an agency, everything... Every time that I see something that is worth sharing, because it talks about the kind of work that the agency can do, the culture that the agency breeds, and the kind of benefits that working at BCW has, I promote those. 
That makes sense. Um, and we started talking about what your role involves as a chief creative officer. So I would love to kind of unpick this journey from one step before. So you moved from being creative director, executive creative director, to being a chief creative officer, and you've been hired by BCW, was a big deal, and you accepted the role. Why do you think they picked you? And also... I have no idea. <laughs> you mentioned at some point in the imposter syndrome, I'm waiting every day for somebody to come and touch my shoulder. Hey, was it different, Fede Garcia? It wasn't used for so sorry. We need to go back to Argentina because the real Fede Garcia is now come. Okay, then on the flip side, why did you apply for the role? Or was it headhunting? Like, how did the role even happen? Like, how does one has a happy, great career of a creative director, executive creative director, and then moves to chief creative officer? Did you consider that that will be your career path? Did you always want to get there? How did that transition happen? It was not by design. I think it was a natural progression of the job. I use a lot of analogies to explain things, right? When you're, imagine football or you got, in London, you call it football, so soccer, if there's any American out there. You start playing like the minor leagues of the club and then eventually you get your day and you're part of the big team. That's being a creative director, if you will, right? You get to play the games. You think of the ideas, you come up with the idea, you work on the ideas. You might be the star of the team. You might be some of the guys who do the hard work on the team. Then eventually one day, you don't have the energy anymore to be running after every ball, but you've gained a lot of experience. So you're in the position of becoming the coach. So all the experience that you got is like, okay, well, I can't run anymore. All these kids outrun me and outplay me, but they cannot outsmart me. So maybe I could help these kids or this team to perform better. And that I feel is the role of the ECD. You are a little bit further away from the creative. You just make sure that the team is playing to the best of the abilities. And then you can do that forever. And it's a great job. But then again, it comes a point in life where, the, well, maybe if I manage the club and that's how you became a CCO, your role is way more executive. Um, you're further away from the creativity, but you feel that you have the experience and the ability to shape the collective work of an agency and you can you believe that you can shape the future of what the the creative output of that agency is or even the how the agency turns its history around and that's where the point that you're ready to be a cco because being a cco has nothing to do with being creative to be honest the other guy with the vision is like Sorry, so what is the role? So what did you have to stop doing and start doing when you transitioned from creative position to chief creative officer? Well, think about it this way. Let's keep using the football analogy. Imagine if Barcelona was playing, Messi was on the field, and the coach would come in and try to take the free kick. Like, no, that's why you have Messi. Your job is to make sure that Messi plays to the best of their ability. Now imagine how stupid it would be that the president of the club, who doesn't even play soccer, wants to take the free kick. So that's the thing. You need, as the president of the club, you need to make sure that your coach has everything that he needs to coach the team and that every player is playing to the best of their abilities. Um, so what you do is you champion the creative of the agency and you're the representative of the creative department when it comes to the C-suite meetings, when budgets are 
discussed and that kind of thing when when the future of the agencies and resources are allocated you have to be the champion for for the creative you set up the creative culture for the agency you're kind of in charge of cultivating a creative bench and and you become a manager like your role is not anymore to come up with ideas even if you once were a good soccer player and and you wish you could take a free kick that's not your job anymore and what i suppose are the most valuable tasks or the most important tasks you do on day-to-day basis as a dco because i think another thing that is probably very difficult in transition that they, there is a big strategic part where you need to set the vision and you need to look after the team and help the company to grow but there is a day-to-day work that kind of is thrown at you from all different directions and the more senior you get the more stuff is thrown at you so what do you feel like is your priority when you come every day at work what are the most important tasks that you focus on the main one is making sure that creative rises because that's the hardest part i was listening to a podcast a couple of months ago and somebody said that the ideas come out of the agency cannot be the hardest part of the job and sadly unless you're in some particular agencies that are usually led by creative the hardest part is the idea to come out of the agency not even getting published but there's a lot of actors in the creative process there's a lot of people with opinions and above all things there's a lot of people with fear and that's why sometimes the hardest thing is to keep the idea alive and make it out to the or, you know, to the other side and get to the client in its best shape and form my job is to remove obstacles it's like okay somebody doesn't like that idea okay why let me talk to that person what's going on what are we afraid of what's happening okay let's work out to make sure that the idea goes or even sometimes ideas are scary it's like well is there an easy fix that doesn't affect the creativity and will make you more at ease going and selling this idea to the client it's really hard right now especially as we were talking with social media and all that and cancel culture that arose from from social media it's very hard to to take risks and creativity is innately taking risks and that's the hardest part one of the things that i learned when i moved to the pr world is the pr world traditionally is managing risk and avoiding risk and creativity is taking risks so there's two sides of the agency that are at war with each other let's minimize the risk of this idea and like well you're killing the idea because everything is in the risk that we're taking so i love that you mentioned that because i i suppose part of the role of any creative leader and especially chief creative officer is creating the culture for the best ideas to thrive and i think culture became this very fancy term for for anything that basically enables things to happen um so what do you think are the biggest contributors to creating this culture where brave ideas can thrive where people can come up with anything and feel like it it can work are there any particular things that when you became a chief creative officer you introduced and it could be as tiny as having breakfast together or it could be as big as creating the new vision for the entire design side or or creative uh, part it's a little bit of everything i feel that at one point your creatives need to feel that they're supported by you that first you need to be aligned on the same vision it's 
we are the guys with the hand on the wheel, right? We are the ones that say we go that way or we go that way. So make sure that everything that is working for you is like, oh, yeah, we're all in the same boat. We want to go where you go. So that's kind of the first thing. And then uh, walk the talk. If you say, hey, we're going there, make sure that everybody feels that we're going there and everybody feels that they're supported and that creative is the most important thing for them to feel comfortable, for them to feel they're in a place where they want to work, where they're doing the kind of work that they want to do. So that's one part. And then make sure that when creativity comes, and creativity is always scary make sure that you are the person who addresses those fears and talk to people and make them understand that sometimes you need to be comfortable with fear and there are levels of comfort that that we need to give up because honestly nothing worth doing never came easy if things are worth doing are easy then the problem will not be worth doing everybody says that so that's kind of the thing there was there was a post on LinkedIn from Anselmo Ramos that he said, if you're not talking to your um, legal department, that idea has no future. Um, and it might be a little bit of an extreme example, but he's not wrong. I've had many conversations with my legal department about many ideas. And the default is, well, that this is the legal would say, I'm, I'm not saying no, but it would create some risk. And it's like, well, our culture... Our culture should be, let's take the risk and see how you how we manage that risk. But it's hard because today, even, even when you're trying to play it safe, you're risking criticism and you're risking cancel culture. I gave a lecture, I think it was like 2017, 2018, and I said, no matter what you do, somebody's going to create, and this was before even cancel culture. No matter what you do, somebody's going to criticize you. So embrace it. Know, know that it will happen, forge ahead, damn the torpedoes. I think this is a brilliant advice. And, and you're so right. If, if you're not getting, I suppose, any opinions or uh, no one is supposed to arguing with it, means you're not doing anything. So you can't, if you're always right, basically, that means you're probably not doing anything. Um, so mm-hmm. making mistakes and learning from them and communicating around mm-hmm. things that you, you, you've done is also part of actual creativity and ideation. But going back to your specific example of a legal department, because I think this is so interesting. And I think that's something that, especially coming from pre- creative background, not everyone will be very comfortable doing. So how those conversations go when you like, this is a great idea, we should go for it, and legal department says no. Can you give an example how you managed to convince them or anything that someone in your position who is not as successful talking to their legal department could use as a potential help? I usually lose. That's the problem. Uh, that's the biggest issue. And when I win, sometimes those are scared, like the legal department feels under the obligation of telling the client that this might be. And the moment that the might word appears in the game is downhill. So that's to me is the hardest part right now. And it's, it doesn't come only from the legal department. It's everywhere. And I feel that we've become a very fearful industry. We're trying not to piss off anyone. I was in my previous job, we were having a conversation with the client and they had some money left and they, they wanted to do a spot. And, and they say, well, we want to do a spot, but nothing that raises a lot of attention. It's like, are you kidding me? Like take the money and build an orchard for your team. Don't put it in advertising. If you do advertising, but you don't want to be seen, why are you doing advertising? 
in the first place. Don't do anything. Give bonus to people. Put a, a taco cart on every day in the office if you don't want to raise attention. Use your money more wisely. This is so interesting. And I love that you bring it up uh, because I think there is this natural fear of getting too much attention. You're right from the brands now. Um, and it is taking creativity to maybe very unhealthy place but at the same time um, my question is about also proving that maybe not to the legal department but you as you rightly said it kind of comes from everywhere the value of creativity in design for creatives is very very obvious we yeah. know that a great idea can change a company's future we know that the great design can become a, a USP we know that these things are something that can differentiate a brand or product or the entire company how do you prove that to your clients or to a CFOs to people who do not believe in design or creativity and have you figured out any sort of again maybe conversations that specifically work with them or any analogies that they do understand that's kind of the hardest part because to me, when it comes to creativity, it always requires a leap of faith because you don't know. Truth is, you don't know. You can play it as safe as you want and it might backfire. One time I was giving that lecture in London and I was talking about an ad that ticked all the boxes that it needed to tick, right? Do we have, and we're talking about ethnicity. Do we have all ethnicities? Yeah, we have. We have African-American? Yeah. Do we have Asian? Yeah. Do we have Caucasian? Yeah. Okay. What else do we need? Middle Eastern? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Do we have all body types? Do we have thin? Do we have models? Do we have people who are not the typical standards of beauty? We have that. Do we have long hair, short hair? Do we have both? Yes. And we know what? We're going to have a model that will go from a brunette, from a blonde to a brunette. Yes. And we're going to be a march and we'll be talking. And I did the list of all the boxes that it ticked. It was endless. It ticked all the boxes. The other I'm talking about is the Kendall Jenner Pepsi. Yeah, it ticked all the boxes, backfired like nothing backfired ever again. So sometimes there's two creators in Argentina that says that avoiding risks took down more agencies than taking risks. And I believe that. So in this world, well, you never, first, it's, it's a given that they're going to criticize you. That's table stakes. People are going to talk shit about whatever you do. Damn if you do, damn if you don't. So in that world, I'd rather go down by taking a shot than to playing safe. And that is the part that requires a leap of faith. And there's a lot of people that don't want to take that leap of faith. So what do they do? They, they embrace data because if something backfires, it's, well, I did what data said I should do. And yet again, what we do is not, is not math. It's not a science. So sometimes the thing you don't think they're going to hit become the most massive hit in the world and the riskiest thing paid off and the safest thing doesn't. Who would have thought that Despacito would be the biggest hit in the last 10 years? Fucking nobody. It's a shit song. So sometimes you need to, you need to take a leap of faith and just go with your gut. That's why, funnily enough, I'm not trying to come full circle. When I talk about Anselmo a lot, his agency is called Gut. I so agree with you uh, with uh, this whole gut feeling. And actually, in our previous episode of this leadership series, we were talking to Justine, the chief creative officer of Majuri, and she talked how obviously they are a, a very much digital business and very much driven by the data and 
their online sales and everything else that kind of proves um, whether a certain design decision or creative decision worked or not. But she said as a chief creative officer, she also set the internal metric of how proud they are of their work. And I think this is so important for us as creative also to balance. Yes, we always need to uh, share some numbers with the CFO. We do need to present something to the client that, again, shows one side of why this worked or what kind of indications we have that this might work. On the other hand, there should be this very much gut feeling. I think this will work. I'm proud of this work. And even if it doesn't work, I still will be proud of this work because I think it's amazing. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing. You need to be willing to put it all on the line at some point. I remember my I had a double major in marketing and advertising. I started with marketing. And I remember it was my first year and my marketing teacher told the story about this Japanese company. And I think it was the CEO came to America. And this was maybe in the end of the 70s or something like that. And he saw an African-American guy carrying this big, massive boombox on his shoulder, listening to music. And he saw that and he thought, there must be a way to to help people carry their own music, uh, something that is more comfortable than that. And he came up with an idea and he, and he tested it terribly bad. It was awful. And the guy said, forge ahead, done the torpedoes. The company was Sony and the guy invented a Walkman. Changed the music industry forever. And if you hear jobs talk, it's like you cannot ask people what they want. You have to show them what they want. And if you think, I think it was Ford, if you ask people what they want, they would want a more powerful horse. So the world is done by those who take a risk and shoot for the stars. And yeah, it's easier to play it safe. And I'm not judging you. Everyone to each its own, as they say, right? You do you, which is the most overused. (laughs) line in every brief ever i love this i think i think that dedication and that push for incredible ideas also requires everyone in the team to be on board with that and really trying to do their best work coming up with great ideas so how do you balance it or balance within the teams that you work this very much high quality, high standards of something that needs to be the idea, needs to be better, needs to be constantly better than the previous one versus team health, working hours, I don't know, stress, everything else that counts with this very high standard. Well, that's the hardest part of it all because in the end, this is a business and you can be all idealistic as you want, but not everyone is in the position that I am where I can lay it all on the line on an idea that I think is going to great. Some people, for me, it's my passion. I'm passionate about what I do. But for some people, it's just a job. And for some people, that is just a job. It's a nine to five that pays for the rent and for the kids' school. And they're not going to lay it all on the line because some crazy Argentinian coming all idealistic with a massive speech. Like, I cannot fuck around. I need my client to buy the idea and I need my client to be happy with me and I need to keep making my salary because I need to support the family and that's completely understandable. And that is probably the hardest part. And then at the same time, you're running a business and I can go to say our biggest client, you should go and shoot for the stars. I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine. She's like one step below the CMO globally and one of the biggest brands in the world. And she told me one day, sometimes they came with these crazy ideas and they're amazing and uh, they're very risky at the same time, but I have a family to support and my company needs to grow 
1% a year and I have that down, I'm going to make my bonus and I'm not going to risk it all on your idealistic shot at fame. And while you can judge her for what you say, it also makes absolute sense because in the end, it's a business and it's a job. That probably one of the things that I struggle the most is finding that, that right medium. And also that's why you have many different kinds of agencies. There are risk agencies that are willing to risk it all and put it on the line. They're shooting for the stars and they're shooting for greatness. And some other agencies, it's just a business that pays for the lives of a lot of people. And you don't want to fuck around with that because that's a lot of people paying for kids' schools. So I'll give you both sides. This is brilliant. And you, going back to your sports analogy, I suppose that is a comparison between going for Olympics and potentially you might overexhaust your body and break and a bone and will never be able to run again. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's part of the game. You have to try to achieve excellence. Um, or if you don't want to do that, you can still enjoy sports and you will still be fit and will still be good at sports, but you're not going to do the other things that Olympians do. So mm-hmm. it is a personal Look, I, I play tennis. And I have friends who are professional tennis players. Not everyone is going to be feathered. Not everyone is going to be the best tennis player ever and, and make $100 million. Some people, they'll just make a good living doing something that they're passionate about. They don't need to shoot for the stars to be happy. That's kind of, at the same time, it's a construction. Ah, If you don't shoot for the stars, you will never be happy. That's kind of bullshit. Sometimes living a, this nice life, quiet, where you can enjoy your family, and have a drink at the end of the day and play the occasional tennis match with your friends and have a beer. And sometimes I feel that that life is even more worth living than the other one that you constantly, it's like you're driving an F1 car that with the only difference that you drive it 24 hours, 24 seven, every single day of the week. That's not healthy either. So on that point, how do you switch off? Because you're so right. You you are driving like this fast car. And I think especially if you're ambitious and considering how successful you were, I assume you're a very ambitious person who is always looking for the next thing and wants to do better and, and create better teams, better companies, better brands. So how do you switch off from that mentality that is very much full on and wants to do better and never, never happy with what you have because that's the thing that drives you? versus actually being relaxed, being happy and enjoying the moment. I don't have a formula for that. I struggle with that. But the one thing that, and this is not an advice for anyone, this is just for me. I've been working, I feel very, very hard to be content with what I have. Like I ask myself every day, um, am I enjoying my life? Do I get to do? And I can be all idealistic and passionate about the job, but sometimes the job is hard because the day-to-day, the grind, the hustle takes a toll. And sometimes, no matter how passionate you are, sometimes things just doesn't happen because most of the things are out of your control. Um, so you can be in super passionate and you can work your team to the ground, which is never a happy thing, and still achieve nothing. So to me, it's like, Try to enjoy every day a little bit. Sometimes the enjoyment comes from an amazing session with your creatives. Sometimes the enjoyment comes from because you have an amazing interview and you got to talk to a lot of people about you believe in. Sometimes it comes because you did sell, you did sell an idea to the client. Sometimes it comes from because you did win an award. And sometimes it comes because you have a great lunch al fresco and have a little aperitivo. 
And I honestly, if you ask me if there's anyone that is better than the other one, I wouldn't know. Sometimes a good lunch and a good aperitivo al fresco overlooking a, a river is far more satisfying than winning a gold at whatever award show. Oh, those, yeah, simple joys of life, uh, they are the best. And we sometimes don't stop for a second to appreciate uh, how yeah. important those are. And but that's the thing, it took me a long, and it's kind of easy right now where I feel that, well, I'm, I'm happy with my career. I feel like eh, it's good. Uh, it's really hard when you're struggling and you're trying to come up ahead because it feels that the grind is never stopping. It's something that I'm learning as I get older. I feel that everything, like, oh, of course you have to work hard, but sometimes you are better at your job. The more at ease you are, the more relaxed you are, the more that, the more that you put the job in its right place. It's not everything. And if it, for you, it's everything. It might take a toll, probably a health one. And that's not good. I think it's especially hard for creatives to separate the work from your own identity because you, this is your idea, everything that you produced, you created it, therefore it is part of you, it's like your own baby. Was it an organic transition where you started separating your work from who you are or was there a point in your life where you're like, okay, this is getting to an unhealthy point, I do need to understand that this is just work and me is me? A little bit of everything. I feel that as passionate as I can be about creativity, I'm equally passionate about many other things. And one doesn't trump the other. And trying to enjoy all the things that I'm passionate about, it's a big part. First, I've been healthier. Second one, I feel it makes me better. There's a, I think there's a quote from Bill Murray. They say, the more relaxed you are, the better you get at your job. The problem is when, when you're growing up, it's very hard to be relaxed because you're so focused on trying to move as high as fast as possible because that's what the culture tells us. Ah, you need to be amazing and young and quickly. You need to reach the top and you need to be a millionaire by 30. It would be great, but that doesn't mean that you'll be happy. Happiness doesn't come necessarily with achievements. I get more ha happiness from somebody talking to my team and passing along what I know uh, or having like an honest conversation with somebody who's struggling than from another fucking statue. Who cares? There was a research that said that our happiness level grows with salaries and with money. And to, I think it was US study that said 75K a year, which is, yeah. I would say, an, an average uh, salary of someone's senior-ish uh, and after that it basically no matter how much more money you get after that it nothing happens and so the, I read a quote somewhere that says how do you think you'll feel when you feel like your first million how do you feel it feels to win your second million same nothing changes you don't feel better like it's I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday he's a kid 20 years old professional tennis player struggling to get it's like achieving something it just puts you at ease it doesn't necessarily make you happy yeah i, I think it, it is this the right level of uh, again achieving this stillness where you don't need to worry about things constantly and there is certain greatness and satisfaction in the fact that you have roof uh, above you and you have food mm -hmm. to eat and you don't need to struggle but i think 
we try to achieve that potentially too fast and overachieve that again even faster instead of mm -hmm. thinking okay i will get there and maybe i should pace myself and decide on other things that give me even more fulfillment like friends and connections and experiences and memories that we collect through our life that will stand with our life but in the moment they don't feel as important because you're chasing this one thing that right now feel like the most important thing in the world i don't think anyone on their deathbed is gonna go thinking ah, if that idea would have come out the, the same time mm. i also don't believe i i was actually talking to a few of my uh, friends who also own agencies and we talked about the fact that on one hand this whole story is about no one regrets uh um, basically on their deathbed things that oh if only i could do more work but at the same time I would also say that I would regret if I haven't done that thing at work that I knew I could do and I haven't put all my efforts to try making it happen. It doesn't mean that other things are not important, but I also feel like there is over-focus on the fact that enough is enough instead of taking risks, as you said before, or trying something that feels uncomfortable. And in the moment, we all feel like maybe maybe not now but why not try it why not i think those are the risks and the things we also will regret look when i when i started in advertising and then again as i said there was no internet so my job was to carry envelopes from the agency to the clients right um there was a movie that i was obsessed with this was called empire empire records and there's this kind of rebellious kid idealistic and he has a line that he says i do not regret the things i've done but those i did not do to my 19-year-old's idealistic self, that was, wow, yes, this, that's it. This is the thing. Now, still resonates with me, but now it resonates more outside of the business. What are the things in life that I'm going to regret not enjoying? And then, then again, going back to the Bill Murray thing, when you're not, when you're absolutely obsessed, immersed, all in, besides being unhealthy, it makes you anxious. It makes you nervous. It makes you doubt yourself. And because of that, you're a lesser professional. So yeah, it comes from a happy place. Again, there was a psychological research that when we are happy and relaxed, we're actually more creative. So that only makes sense that stressing about your creativity or your job definitely doesn't help the job. So being relaxed and yeah. happy can definitely help anything you're doing. You yeah, started talking you. about uh, how you grew up and the movies and TV shows and everything that you watched, which is another exciting topic that when I was reading about you and obviously you have massive, massive passion for creativity, advertising and, and great advertising uh, that I suppose was this dream when I was growing up and when you were growing up, this TV adverts was something that we all saw as the only creative outlet out there. I didn't know if there are any other creative jobs, but I knew advertising and creating this uh, absolutely magical adverts that completely transform your mind. And um, it was just so inspiring seeing them. And, and I know you're also a big fan of Bold's commercial. This was actually yeah. the one that I, this is probably my number, number one commercial uh, that. Uh, made me actually move to London uh, because Fallon worked on, on that. It was Fallon London who was working on um, uh, that account and uh, Bulls, Bulls, the Sony Bravia. Ah, yeah. It was done by an Argentinian guy. 
see there is a connection there i love it um and when i was in san francisco i went to that street and i literally cried because when i saw that in my in in real life that was just so emotional basically seeing your childhood dream in real life and again that that what attracted us to creative and advertising what are your thoughts on where this industry is going now and it is very different from what we grew up with because it was the only thing that was creative how did you see changing and what do you think is the future? To me, I'm going to answer differently to your question. I fell in love with advertising because of the stories, right? I love seeing those 30-second, one-minute stories that they were so creative and imaginative and all of that. So for me, it was always about the, the storytelling. Uh, when I was growing up, I loved telling a story, telling an anecdote. It was funny. I met with this. Um, woman not so long ago in the London International Awards and she knows Argentina very very well and she, she said you always have a story to tell you Argentinians always you and your stories and it's part of the culture we grow up telling stories we love to tell an anecdote oh let me tell you about that time I could tell anecdotes for 10 hours straight that's how we grow up that's what we like and advertising is a little bit of that is let me tell you a story and that's the one thing that I, why I'm still passionate about what we do, because while everything, everything has changed in the last 30 years, the one thing that hasn't is that it's all about telling a good story. I was not toying with the idea. I actually started writing a, a children's book for the, it was called a, a children books, a children book of advertising for the infant marketer. Because I feel sometimes we get so caught up in the lingo and everything and we forget that advertising is very, very simple. Advertising was always about telling a good story. Sometimes you tell a good story with an image. I remember growing up, there was this amazing Mercedes-Benz ad. It was a billboard and it was a Mercedes parked on the street, an SLK. And you can see next to it several skid marks, right? And it was a static image, but you can see the entire movie. Cars driving by and hitting the brakes just to take a look at the car. And I thought that was an amazing ad. It's one image tells the whole story. So you can tell a story with one image. Sometimes you can tell a story with an ad that it's a copy ad. I did that for the NBA when Kobe Bryant retired. Say, hey, we need to, the NBA is going to write a letter to Kobe. And that's a way of telling a story. And you can do it obviously in the TV ad, but these days you can do it on a TikTok post you can do it on an instagram story you can do it on a reel you can do it on a virtual experience but then again in the end there's something that never changes you're telling a story in the hope that you will promote a product but you do it through an emotional vehicle that it's always going to be a story there's this writer that i love is a spanish writer called carlos guizafon he writes novels and he wrote a tetralogy that is that I absolutely love, but in, in the second book of the tetralogy, he says, one of the characters says, everything that we know, it's a story. Everything that you believe in, everything that you know in life, everything that you hold dear to your heart, it's a story that somebody told you. And she mentioned religion. You, religion is a great story. Uh, sometimes when I push it a little bit further, you don't even know if your parents are your parents. That might be a story that they told you. <laughs> Oh, I love this analogy. And I think the storytelling element is, again, so important, but so often forgotten. 
again in advertising as well so I, I totally agree with you that it's not about advertising as a medium or as an industry it's more about storytelling as a as an approach and a mindset and uh, going back to Sony Bravi and all of these balls jumping down um the 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 street it's the emotion that you get from this it's not necessarily there is a beginning middle and end and there is a, a certain narrative. There, is, there is a story there even if it's a small one and i also feel like that kind of emotional part of it is very important for for stories because it basically a sense checking whether the story that i'm telling is evoking any any emotion in in the listener whether it is joy whether it is sadness whatever and that Again, that commercial was just evoking pure joy, pure magic. And yeah, as you said, without any words, you could just watch it yeah. and feel all of these things. And that's what good storytelling does. It just makes you feel something that you don't even know how it happened. It just happened in front of your eyes. And it's, it's funny. It's funny that you mention every time that I talk about advertising and like when I think it's not doing good. My question is always make me feel something. At BCW, our, our tagline is moving people and I always says move me, make me laugh, make me think, make me smile, make me scared, make me anxious. Whatever it is, move me in some kind of way. If you don't, if you're not move me, moving me, you're irrelevant. I don't care. You And most of the ads today. They don't make you feel shit. So do you think then advertising as a term just kind of changed or what we meant as advertising is just, uh, again, it is storytelling. And now, because you do work in PR, which used to be called guerrilla advertising. It was still advertising. It was just, uh, and now has all these terms like organic reach or whatever other other ways we describe it. But, uh, and then there is a brand marketing, which again is just telling a story of a brand in a different way might be through social media, might be through TikTok, through anything. So do you think it's just the terms became outdated rather than the industry itself? I think the term has become outdated because we're all doing the same thing. We're all trying to create stories. We're all telling stories on behalf of our clients, trying to make those stories as attractive as possible. We're trying to move people with those stories to achieve the same end. There's something that I always said that we're trying to move people emotionally, to move them from not caring to caring, from disinterest to interest, from not buying to buying. It's all about that movement that, that we create. And in that sense, we're all in the same business. An ad campaign, a PR campaign, an activation, an ex user experience thing, it's all about the same thing. The good user experience tells a story. Um, so we're all in the same business. We have just have different approaches to it. But more and more, those approaches are becoming more similar and similar. I remember that you mentioned so much my LinkedIn post. I think it was about six years ago. I posted something like it said, I'm tired of agencies talking about digital agencies. Every agency is digital because everything that we see is through a digital medium. So enough with the digital agency. If you don't want to be a digital agency, call yourself a pre-digital agency because everyone is fucking digital right now. So right now, nobody talks about digital agencies anymore. It's just what we do. And in the end, it's just what stories do we have to tell? Are they good enough, interested enough to move people, to make them feel something? And then again, what's the best version of that story? Where is that story best told? Sometimes it's going to be a 90-minute movie in the cinema, and sometimes it's going to be a 15-second TikTok. 
Ah, this is a wonderful way to, to describe what we all do here as creatives, because I think that's literally the job of a creative is to mm -hmm. tell stories, whether it's through writing, visual or any other medium. I'm in a PR agency right now. When I grew up and I was 19 years old working for an advertising agency, I remember we were with a PR agency and the PR agency were writing press releases. They were just Coca-Cola launch a new flavor ad and the PR agency write a press release that says Coca-Cola launch a new flavor ad and it's great because of this, that, and that. Nothing has changed. The only thing has changed is that that story is no longer interesting. They're not going to publish it on the media. So all I have to do is tell a better version of that story. So nothing has changed. The only thing that has changed is that there are more voices competing for my audience ears and eyeballs. So I just need to come up with a better story, more emotional, more moving, but in the end, it's the exact same job. I just have more tools and I just need to tell a better story. This is so true. And uh, as you said, there are more voices now and also more channels to tell stories, more mediums. It used to be so easy with just TV and newspaper and maybe occasional magazine. Uh, and now there are just so many, which is beautiful for creativity because each of us can choose the medium that we like and the medium we connect and the medium our yeah. audience likes so it's actually much better uh, and uh, our job became even more creative since then so that's what's still exciting about it for me and because i'm no longer on the detailed craft execution when i'm involved in a piece of work it's always about what story are we going to tell now love it absolutely love it so can you tell a bit more about this differentiation between being creative and being a creative. Sorry, where did I say that? Because I talk a lot about that, but that's very particular to the PR world. <laughs> well, I suppose the, the 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 conversation there was, which I can definitely relate to, that I believe that everyone is creative. Every single person on this planet is creative and uh, should be creative and should be encouraged to be creative. And that's something that definitely should be limited to a design department or creative department on advertising. On the other hand, being a creative means this is now your job. Going back to your sports analogy, now you're in for it for money, for career, for everything else. Therefore, you need to structure it. You need to be more efficient in it. You, there are certain things that you need to now do because that's your job. So what, what what's your experience with those things? Well, that thing kind of started as I moved into the PR world and then discovered that the PR agencies are vastly different from advertising agencies. They do not have creative teams. They have PR executives that they do brainstormings and come up with ideas. And that kind of makes sense because from the PR world, when the, the, as I was, we were talking before about the press releases, sometimes all you need to find is an angle. Okay, how do we tell this story? But the outcome of that story would be a press release or let's do an event where we show this and that. So there's, there's creativity in that. But... As the world moves forward, and some, then suddenly everyone is competing for your attention. Like, look at your, if I look at my phone now, it's like I'm trying to have all my focus here, and I have like a gazillion things competing from a notification from, I don't know, Grubhub that is sending me an offer for me to buy noodles to my mom who is texting me, an Instagram thing, people liking something, that there's so many things competing for my attention that it's hard to make a message stick. So the one thing that helps you cut through the clutter 
is creativity. But because of the immense amount of the competition, now your creativity needs to be raised to a whole different level. And the thing is, you might be a very creative person, but that doesn't make you a creative. And my favorite analogy for that, it was happened during the pandemic, where everybody in the US was doing focaccias. Everybody was coughing up for focaccia all the time. Uploading pictures of focaccia. My focaccia is great. I did this focaccia. Here's my picture of focaccia. Does it make you a baker? No, it doesn't. A baker spits out 20 focaccias every 20 minutes, 24 seven. That's what it takes. It's all you do is spit out a focaccia. I also go, do you drive? Yeah. Do you like to drive? Yeah. Do you have a fast car? Yeah. Do you drive fast? Yeah. Are you Lewis Hamilton? No, then you're not a driver. You're just a guy that likes to drive fast. And that's the difference. Growing up as a creative in any industry, your job is to come up with ideas all day long, as many as you can, for most of them being shut down by some big creative director and starting all over again from scratch as if nothing happened. It's not the talent, it's the ability to do that nonstop without loss of enthusiasm. People believe that creatives were some kind of magic people that we have a different talent. We don't, our only talent is to not stop. We are, I'm as creative as anyone. And I mean like average. The only thing that I did for my career is just, just did it for longer. Somebody, oh, let's do a brainstorm in one hour. Then they fade, they don't know how to keep going. Well, I had to do it 10 hours a day, every single day, including weekends. And it's that fortitude, if you will, what makes you a creative, not your creative talent. And that's, that's the big difference. I, I love that you mentioned this, especially the point about enthusiasm. And I also would say that applies no matter which level you are in your career, that you can be in a fantastic creative if you have enough enthusiasm, because at the beginning of your career, whether it's design or anything, all you need is a lot of passion and enthusiasm, because that will make you learn more, be aware of everything that's going on, do more work, try more things. That enthusiasm will drive you through all the pain that you have to go through while you're learning things. Yeah. And the more senior you get, again, there will be situations where you're tired, where you don't want to do it, when maybe that's not your favorite project, but you need to have this passion for what you do. Otherwise, you won't be able to survive or, or, or progress or be good at your job. That applies to any job in general. You have to be passionate. That's number one rule for, for any yeah. career. Well, there's a famous book by Paul Arden uh, with the legendary Sachi and Sachi director. And it's called, it's not how good you are, it's how good you want to be. And in one of these pages, he has like, it's a double spread in red with white letters. It's fail, fail again, fail better. And the job is just to keep doing, like I always keep explaining, like out of a hundred of ideas that I can come up with, probably 99 will suck. One will be average. My only ability is the ability to come up with a hundred ideas without loss of enthusiasm and without being frustrating that 99 suck. And even when I get to the one that is good, I still have the ability to go at it again and try to see if from the next batch of 100, one beats the decent one from the day before. And you do that ad infinitum. And that's what makes you a creator, not your creative talent. As you mentioned, is what you were talking about the ad that makes you want to be in advertising. I was 
a big fan of advertising. I wanted to be a creative, but I decided to study marketing because I did because I thought I didn't have the talent to do what these people do. So I said, well, I don't think I'm creative. I think I'm smart. So I'm going to be marketing that is more, I didn't know anything, obviously. But I felt that marketing was more strategic and my smarts would fit better that marketing angle. I still feel that I have zero talent. The only thing that I have is I've done it enough, so some things stick, I would say. Ah, this is a great advice for anyone and definitely very inspiring thought to have in mind. Is being good at creativity important to be a chief creative officer? Do you think it is important, not important at all? Could be beneficial, quite important or very important? It's the same. Let's go back to the soccer analogy. Obviously, you need to know how to play soccer. If you never played soccer, you need to have the experience. You need to have had a career. You need to be through it. Now, being the best in the world makes you the best coach? No. Maradona wasn't the best coach when he coached, but he was Maradona. Uh, and I met, and I would consider myself one of those, average creatives whose career really take off when they get to the creative director level and above because they have the ability to build a team and to push a team or inspire a team, or they're great at giving feedback, but they suck at coming up with the ideas themselves. And some of the best creative directors that I know they were not great creatives. And on the opposite end, some people are so talented that they don't know how to delegate. They don't know how to be generous with their team. They will say, well, you suck, so let me do it. That would be the coach coming into the field to kick the corner kick and then try to head the corner kick into the goal. And that's the worst kind of creative director that there is. So... It's important to, I think it's more, more important to know creativity, to have great taste, to have the ability to flip an idea on its head and give great feedback. If you happen to be a great creative at the same time, that's great, but it's not a condition. I used to work with a guy that I loved dearly. He was an amazing creative, but he didn't have the skills that make for a great creative director. And we had this conversation. He told me, I hate being a creative director. I just want to put my headphones on and write all day long. And I told him, you should do that. Forget about the traditional career. Go get paid incredibly well because you're incredibly talented, but get paid to put your headphones on and write. Brilliant advice. I think this is, uh, this is very much aligns uh, with what we see everyone replied. So I think a majority of people, actually majority of people said very important, but I totally agree. It's all about the degree of how good you are. Um, so we can agree that creativity is important, but not being the best out of the best. No, because one of the things that happens at the CD level and grows bigger and bigger and bigger as you go up, is not about you anymore. So if it's not about you, however creative you might be, it doesn't play. It's like playing the orchestra. Like, yeah, you can be the most amazing violinist ever, but can you play the orchestra? There was a great analogy around the orchestra that I loved. So that uh, it was more about entrepreneurs, but I would say any creators applies. Um, so obviously there is an orchestra and every individual needs to be excellent. And then there is a conductor who again needs to conduct them excellent. But the yeah. entrepreneur or creative in this case is the composer, the one who wrote the music and come up with the sounds in the first place, not the one directing them and not the one actually playing, which I, I love the idea of that. If that didn't exist, then none of them would be here playing the music now, no matter how amazing they are. It comes from... The best violinist in the world, but 
can you make the entire orchestra play to its best of its abilities? Mm. Two different skills. Very much so. Okay, let's move to the second one. Is business knowledge important to be a chief creative officer? What do you think, Fede? Very, because your job is the business right now. I always keep telling, I was having this discussion with my North American ECD, and I said, well, when you're a creative, your job is your brief. Your job is your career. When you're a CD, your job is your team. When you're the, like this guy, you're, you're the ECD of North America, your job is the creative output of the entire region. And my job is the agency. I think in terms of what's good for the agency, not good for the individual copywriter that is pitching me an idea because he wants to be successful. My eyes, my eyesight need to be much wider. And I'm in a position where my successes can be measured in the creative output, but the creative output, it's in service of how it affects the business. I think this is probably the number one thing that will differentiate you when you get to that position, because that's something, unfortunately, we are not taught or explained throughout our creative career. So it's very difficult to pick up, but that's something that is expected for you to know. So this is very, very yeah, important. That you I learn. feel that that's the hardest part because nobody teaches you that. They teach you how to be a great creative. But in the end, you're running a business and the objective of the agency is to turn a profit. And you need to understand the business. And I think there's something that happened in my career when I feel that looking back on the first 10 years of my career, I did all the wrong choices. And as Steve Jobs says in his famous speech, you can only put the dots together by looking back. So having a marketing major helped me in ways that are really paying off 20 years later, understanding what the clients need and all like having a, a bigger understanding of what the business is, because if not, I'm just the guy, I'm just the kid coming up with the ideas. And the funny thing is that when you are creative at the most basic level, level, you're selfish and it's okay, but you're trying to come up with the best idea. So that idea could make you famous. You can make awards and you can move forward to your next position and be paid more money. But at some point, your job is the agency, not the idea anymore. And that's what a CCO does probably that's a good time to mention that we do have an mba program specifically focused on the fact that uh, creatives do need to acquire business skills so if anyone interested in moving to the cco position uh, definitely check our design leaders program because we all felt that as a the creative community that it's very difficult to find that knowledge around business skills but it sorry is i just saw a friend commenting hi dela Sorry. <laughs> Brilliant. I love when friends join. This is so much fun. Um, great. Are writing skills important to be a chief creative officer? No, but it helps. Being a good writer makes you more articulate. So it's important when you're at that level that you are quite articulate about the points that you're making. Um, I think it have helped me. Like English is not my first language. Tried really hard to become a great writer in English. It's funny that you're mentioning my posts are all in English and that's not my, my natural language, but I, I did try really hard to get better at writing in English and trying to convey the ideas in the way that I want to convey them. And then developing all those skills, I feel that at some point made me a better presenter and more articulate about the, the ideas that I want to convey. So I think being a good writer beyond being moving and inspirational it just makes you a better argumenter that is that a word 
But your job is to argument. Your job is to have discussions. Your job sometimes is convince people of your point of view and get them to come along. And the ability to express your ideas in a concise manner is very important. There was a time when I was growing up, I would write myself what I wanted to say. So I had it fresh in my mind when I would deliver it. Now it comes more natural. I'm kind of getting used to it. But sometimes when you want to be articulate, just write the whole thing, what you would say. And if you're a writer and you can be concise about that, that sticks and then you're better at it. Ah, I, this is a fantastic advice. And uh, I would say, yeah, somewhere in between, that's something that I also try to focus on more because English is also not my first language and writing is especially hard, but I'm, I'm doing my best with that as well. Let me, let me put it this way. At this level, and even at that ECD level, sometimes at even a creative director level, you're talking to your clients, right? And you need to convince your clients about, first, that your idea is great, and they should dump a shitload of money onto that idea. If you go and speak, and you're not convincing and articulate and have a great argument to make, and if everything you say is, uh, uh, what kind of confidence is your client going to have on you when they need to give you $7 million to shoot, to shoot a campaign? There's one thing that you need to inspire in every client is confidence. If you're articulate, it helps a lot. Yeah, communicating to clients, teams, and between the teams, I think it's something written or uh, verbal communication, definitely. Um, Look, there's something I always tell this anecdote, and I don't get tired of telling it because it helped me so much. When I arrived to Tokyo, I only spoke English, right? And my English was not as fluent as it is now. It was my first experience out of the country. And this was like 11 years ago. And when my teams were pitching me ideas, they were pitching it in Japanese and they were pitching it to a translator that would translate the ideas to me in English. And I had to give feedback in English. First, I would think the feedback in Spanish because I was just right out of the country. And I would put my feedback in Spanish into English for somebody that wasn't skilled in advertising to put it in Japanese for a creative to understand the feedback. And Argentinians, we tend to rumble a lot while we speak and we tend to think while we're speaking. So we rumble until we find out what we want to say. And what I learned there is that I couldn't rumble because somebody's translating it. So I had to stop and gather my thoughts maybe for a minute or two or three to put it in the most precise way possible for her to translate it as precise as she could to my teams. And I kind of got onto that habit while I was in there. So now when COVID started, it became a current, like a running joke with my team that every time they pitch me an idea, I start looking at the ceiling and I start looking elsewhere, not to the camera. And it could go like two minutes like that without me saying anything because I'm just putting together my thoughts and they make fun of me because of that. But that's how, okay, let me make sure what I feel, what I think, and how to put it in the simplest way possible so they really, really get it. And that I learned in Tokyo just because of the fact that I was losing a sim trans, they call it, simultane, simultaneous translator. This is such a good trick. Uh, and I can imagine that it also makes you sound more confident because what you say is very precise and you really thought it through. Uh, yeah. And uh, definitely there is a, they, they talk in public speaking in general, the importance of silence and pauses before you say something important. Yeah. Uh, so I think. Well, I used the, to have a, I used to have a creative director that wasn't great on the immediate feedback, right? 
they need to collect their thoughts, spend some time. And I told her one day, it's like, don't feel under the obligation to give immediate feedback if you need time to collect your thoughts and make sure how you feel about it and what would be the feedback. Take notes, get the deck, finish the meeting, go do your work, try to see how you feel, what, what you think about the ideas, what would be the feedback and set up a meeting the next day and give the feedback that uh, you think is the best feedback that you can give. You don't have to do it immediately, take your time. It's worse that if you just wanna give feedback immediately and then you'd say, oh, I said something stupid. Love this. This is a great, great trick. Is ability to learn fast important to be a chief creative officer? I would say yes, and not because of the fast. It's because when you come to the CCO role, there's so many things that you are not prepared for that you need to learn. So the ability to learn fast is helpful in that way. Um, like for me, it happened like the massive change from working from the advertising world to the PR. I needed to learn as fast as possible of the things that would work, the things that would not work, the things from my past that I needed to let go because they were not, not useful and the new skills that I needed to acquire just to adapt to my job. So in that sense, I would say yes, but it's not about being a fast learner. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And I think that the importance of growth mindset in general, knowing that you can learn and knowing that you don't know everything, I think it's just in general a good mindset for anyone. Well, that's a different world. thing. That I think is incredibly important. The ability of always being opening, being open, no matter how accomplished you are, always know that there might be something that you don't know that you need to learn to get better, that, to, that is even more important than being a fast learner. I, since I've been growing old, I always been thinking, I love the idea of becoming a beginner again. Like it's been, I've been doing this for almost 30 years, right? So like at some point, even if you have the, most, the biggest imposter syndrome in the world, at some point you consider yourself some kind of expert of, of what you do. And you miss that, the humility of being a beginner. So I pursued, throughout, I would say the last 10 years of my career, maybe even more, different activities where I would feel like a beginner again. So you know what it feels like to not know it all. I started, I learned Japanese and I was old. You cannot learn a new language at this age. Yeah, you can. I learned how to box. I learned how to do yoga. I learned how to meditate. Um, I learned how to ride a motorcycle. And I love feeling like a beginner. Some people cannot take it. But to me, it helps me out in a way that it humbles me. I feel nice to go into a boxing gym and being the one guy that cannot throw a punch while they're kids that are half your age and they're like masters at it. And I think it helps me out at, to keep in my mind open. And especially now with the change to PR, there's a lot of things about PR that I don't know. And, and I try to keep myself open to learning something new every day and that would make me better in the end i'm not scared about not knowing but it's I hard can, sometimes i can so relate to your kind of beginner mindset and i i actually the project of learning 30 hobbies in 30 weeks uh which was essentially all about that trying something new but also potentially finding a new passion and i can totally relate to that feeling of being completely lost and not even 
able to understand how do you start and there are skills that come to you easier so sports for me is easier but music mm-hmm. for me was incredibly hard and I tried to do singing and all different musical instruments and I just felt so frustrated of being completely unable to produce anything and it's such a good feeling that as you said with a progression we don't feel and we yeah need but some people ourselves. some people hate it because they're so accomplished that feeling that they suck at something they're so out of their comfort zone that they cannot deal they're so used to being listened to revered that being a beginner is impossible i have met a lot of people like that i try to make a conscious effort also it's part of the going back to the beginning of the talk of enjoying life a little bit more learning something new makes me happy or learning the things that i wish i could have learned and i haven't yet in general, learning actually obviously creates new new connections in your brain, but it helps with uh, creativity and um, also mental health and everything else. So definitely uh, a good thing to do. Is time management important to be a chief creative officer? Incredibly important because you're, especially in my case, that I'm a global CCO, you get pulled into a million different directions. So is not only time management important, but time allocation. What are the things that really matter your time? Where you can make really make a difference? Because there's a lot of people in any agency that just get a little bit more comfort, comfortable if you are sitting on that. Well, Fede is here. And it's, sometimes I have nothing to contribute. I'm not solving any problem. I don't know everything. Sometimes I don't really have nothing to say or I cannot make whatever is being made better. So for me to having the ability to choose where am I needed, first, where am I needed the most? And second is where I can make a bigger contribution, that's key. 100% agree. Prioritization, allocating your time, so, so important. It's more important than time management. Yeah, and, and again, I think it's uh, it's good to have this broad discussion of everything that is important because definitely these seven do not cover everything that actually goes into the job. Is resilience important to be a chief creative officer? Absolutely. That's the one thing that not only to be chief, to be a, like a human being, like the ability of, of rolling with the punches and still keep going. I think it was Churchill who said that success is the ability to go from failure to failure without loss of excitement or, or enthusiasm yeah. or something like that. That's resilience. I always said that being a creative is the profession of frustration. Every day you come to the job and your job is being a genius. And every day, I swear to God, you fail at it. Resilience is what keeps you coming every day. And then I said, well, you come up with a great idea and then maybe your partner doesn't like it. And it's that maybe your creative director doesn't like it. Or he's a jerk that feels like he needs to touch the idea to, so he's part of it. And then he touches it and fucks it up. And there's the, the GCD and the ECD and the CCO and the global CCO who all comes with the egos. And then they come the clients who might want to touch the idea and change the idea. And then there's to production where a million things can fail. So the chances of your perfect idea to make it out that the way you intend it to be are very, very slim. So resilience is the one thing that makes or break it your career wonderful we have one more left is ability to create a vision important to be a chief creative officer very 
you are the guy with the map and you're the guy that points to the place where the agency goes. I think there's a, a beautiful quote from Little Prince. I can remember if it's Little Prince or if it's um, Alice. I think it's Alice through the, through the looking glass. Alice in Wonderland, sorry. I know all the name of these books in Spanish. <laughs> Apologies. And I think somebody is asked, hey, can you tell me the fastest way to go? And he said, and somebody answers, where? Where do you want to go? It doesn't matter as long as I get as I get the fastest. And then the other one replies, it doesn't, doesn't matter. If you don't know where you go, you'll never get there. Something like that. It's a beautiful quote. And that's the kind of the role of the CCO. And I think every creative, when they were growing up, and they say, oh, those guys take all the credit and they do nothing. They don't think we're grinding here and they just ruin the ideas. And like every creative has complained about their CDs, GCDs, ECDs. CCOs. But as the CCO, you're the guy with the map and you're the guy that chooses the destination. In that sense, like the saying goes, with a lot of power comes a lot of responsibility. You're the guy that says we're going there. And when that fails, it's all on you. There's nobody else to blame. Ah. If it happened to me in pitches and say, guys, I think we should go that. That's the kind of ideas that I want to present. That's the kind of campaign that I want to show. And the client didn't go there. And somebody asked me, why didn't we win? Because I wanted to go to A and the client wanted to go to B. And that's it. And the only one making that decision is me. This is brilliant. And uh, I think this is literally described how difficult and uh, uh, important the role of chief creative officer is. And actually looking at the poll results, seems like our three winners of the most important skills are ability to create a vision, resilience and time management or prioritization if we want to uh, talk more about that and actually out of those three what would you put as number one as the winner is it time management resilience or ability to create a vision as a cco the vision is the most important thing the other ones just get you through the job they make you better at your job but it's like you are the taste maker of the agency you are the one that says we do this kind of ideas. We don't do this kind of ideas. This is the kind of work that we want to be known for. And this is not the kind of work that we, we're known for. And that decision usually resides with you and you alone. And that's the good of the bad of it. If the agency strides because of your vision, then you've done a good job. If the agency doesn't because of your vision, it's all on you. And I think that's one of the biggest things or most important things as a CCO is being able to take responsibility for the decisions that you make. And at that position, you're the ultimate decision maker. 100, 100% agree. And I have one last question left for you, Fede, which is a bit more philosophical. And we love asking uh, design and creative leaders around the world this question. So if you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? Related to our business or related to the world? Because obviously it would be like world peace and hunger. Anything, but you can only pick one. It would be true. I don't think it, it, that it makes for a great conversation because everybody would agree. I think it would be and hunger. But when it comes to a business, probably canceling social media. <laughs> I personally, it's, look, it's great and it's amazing to see what your friends are doing. I don't think that it brings so much to my life as it takes because I feel that it can be so toxic so people a lot of people can manage it and they're okay with it they just take everything with a grain of salt but most likely you won't and it can be incredibly toxic 
as I said before in the beginning of the meeting, you cannot live your life comparing comparing yourself to everyone else because you will always lose. And that to me is not the way to live. Even if I'm a heavy user of social media. <laughs> I think we all can do something to make this uh, positive change. And uh, and again, we, we can always limit how we use it and think about others when we use it. So I think that's an important message to to have in mind uh, when we all stop this uh, conversation and go back to our phones and our laptops and potentially dive into the yeah, world. I think I wrote that. something on LinkedIn that it was called, we're all selling ourselves. Take it with a grain of salt. Everybody that you see some, some somebody's post on LinkedIn or on Instagram, think of it as an ad for that person. That might not, not every product is great. That's those Toyotas that you see on the ads, they suck. No offense to Toyota. Um, so think about social media posts as somebody's advertising themselves. And I include myself. I'm not, I'm guilty of all the things that I'm mentioning too. But think, well, somebody is doing an, an, an ad of themselves. That's it. That doesn't mean that it's true. Thank you, Fede, for your honesty. And seriously, it's so um incredible to have a conversation with someone like you who again is successful inspiring done a lot seen a lot but still keeps himself grounded and understand what's good what bad is and still has aspirations but also has a lot of self-awareness and introspection and, and reflection and everything you're seeing around you and uh, i feel like we touched on so many important points today in this discussion that hopefully will inspire other creatives to maybe pursue a career uh, in leadership or maybe decide to stay within the creative field and actually just be individual contributor who are incredibly creative and good at what they do but don't want to deal with other things that Chief Creative Officer has to deal with. So thank you so much for joining this conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you to everyone that, that came and overwhelmed with this many people. Thank you for all the comments. So sad that I cannot read them all, but, but thank you, everyone. Thank you.